set the scene, um, think about some of these amazing uh, running things that one can do. Um, Mara and I are going to talk in, in sort of three sections. Essentially, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, what's happened on the UK running scene in the last 40 years. So what's happened um, in terms of the sort of running phenomenon that we see today. There's a whole mass of different ways in which people can run and different um, events in which people can do and different um, cultural changes in what we know of as, as running um, that have occurred over the last few decades. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that, a little bit about the history of how we came to where we are today. And then Mara's going to contrast that by talking a little bit more about the, the background to running in Japan, which is um, a nation which is passionately devoted to long-distance running, um, but has got to its present position um, in relation to running in a rather different way uh, than we have. And after that, uh, I'm then going to come back and talk a little bit more about some of the ways in which running is being looked at today in the academic literature, um, which passes across uh, psychology, sociology, anthropology and a whole variety of, of fields. Um, and just, just bring up a few ideas really that are interesting in relation to um, what we might think of as a running phenomenon. So I was, um, I was, I was quite grateful last week when um, Marcus uh, started his talk by saying it wasn't based on any actual fieldwork. And our talk isn't based on any actual fieldwork either, but it's based on a kind of long involvement with running. We've both been involved with running for about uh, three decades or more, so we both ran as children. We ran quite kind of obsessively and competitively as students here at Oxford. Um, Mara then, as we've heard, became a um, professional elite athlete, uh, whilst I have remained involved in running um, and have coached running as well and also organised some running events in recent years. And so we've sort of got this um, long-standing um, involvement with the sport, um, with, the, with the activity that is running. And I've also brought that more into my academic interest recently by thinking of it uh, more in a sort of biocultural framework. And in a way, the more I think about it, the more odd and obscure uh, running becomes, especially in some of its more modern manifestations and the way in which running has kind of taken over uh, from other activities. So um, there's a whole array of different ways in which running can, can occur, but and what we've generally seen, and, and just apologies because this is not a scientific slide, it's just a general trend, um, basically, uh, no one can deny that there's been a huge um, increase in um, running, basically, over the last four decades, starting with a sort of jogging boom, the so-called jogging boom in the sort of late 60s, 70s, I think the term jogger was first used in the 1960s, um, and sort of fuelled by a real interest in, in jogging for sort of health and fitness in the States, um, there's been this sort of exponential rise in uh, the number of people running, the ways in which you can run, the kind of running events you can do, um, the types of people involved. Um, so, for example, women's running, distance running, um, has really... Uh, taken off over this period because before the 1970s women weren't even permitted to run in marathons and the marathon didn't enter the Olympics for women until 1984 so, so running has really been um, on the up for women in particular here and also there's been greater participation across different age groups um, you have, as you will know if you've ever seen any of these sort of mass running events you have you know, people in their 80s, even 90s running in marathons, you have sports events now for, for younger children and so on. So there's a greater diversity of people running um, in all these events. And um, that sort of generally seems like a good thing. And there are, there are literally millions of people running in the UK. It's quite hard to get a, a figure on that. But if you look at the participation in some of the key events, um, it's easy to add up the numbers and find out there are actually millions of people participating in running events in addition to those who might just go jogging or whatever. So it, it's been a sort of curious rise in a way, um, or maybe not. I mean, maybe if you take the view of, of this guy, um, famous book on running from the 70s. Um, it, it, this book was a bestseller in the States at the time that the sort of running boom started, and he basically claimed that running could change your life. And he said running could change your life in all sorts of ways. You know, it was great for your health, it was great for your, your weight control, it was great for your sex life, it was great for all sorts of other things. 
and um, he sort of waxed lyrical about running in a way that um, put him to the top of the bestseller list um, for some time after his book came out in the States and then he did the same in the UK and kind of tried to popularise running. Um, however, and perhaps paradoxically, perhaps not, again, non-scientific slide just showing a few trends, um, basically you've got all these people running, millions of them, and yet at the same time uh, we're all familiar with the fact that population measures of physical activity in the UK have gone right down and that's at all levels, children, older people, um, all sorts of people, men and women and so on. And also, alongside that, of course, we've got the, the rise in obesity. So, um, you know, levels of, is it 25% obesity, roughly? Keeps rising. Keeps rising. So, obesity keeps going up, physical activity keeps going down, um, more people are running. Um, and also, interestingly, if you consider running a sport, um, the quality and the depth of elite runners and top level club runners has gone down over the same period as well. So we've got fewer good runners. Lots more runners, but many fewer good runners. And um, that's particularly true in the marathon. Now obviously, you're going to say to me, well, you might say to me, the UK has um, the world record holder in the women's marathon, Paula Radcliffe, which is true, and we also have the current world, world champion and Olympic champion in the men's 5,000 and 10,000 metres, Mo Farah. However, the depth, the number of people who can put out a good really good marathon time has gone down. And the last UK winner of the men's London Marathon was in the 1980s. And the times of men running in the London Marathon, British men running in the London Marathon, um, now don't come anywhere near to the times of those running in the 1980s. So we have just seen an overall drop in, in that, which is sort of surprising if you think of running as a sport, but maybe not surprising if you think of running as an activity, a kind of leisure activity. So running has kind of come to be at this sort of nexus, if you like, of leisure and sport um, and has taken on different manifestations and has perhaps different meanings for people now compared to what it did, which is quite interesting. Um, so, just a brief history um, of running. So basically, um, it's always a bit hard to pinpoint the exact history of the start of any particular sport, but um, as I can, as far as I can gather, there's, there, there's evidence of some sort of some running races um, dating back uh, over 200 years, but these early races were often sort of races between, they're often races between um, the workers of land owners who sort of um, set, set their own men against the men of another local landowner and had um, races that people bet on, that kind of thing. So that was kind of early foot races. Um, but we have to wait really until we get to the mid-19th century before running um, becomes a kind of recognised sport in mainly public schools, universities and so on. And then if you jump forward to the 1880s, we have the first, one of the first um, organised cross-country races um, in the UK was the, the Oxford-Cambridge Varsity Match, which started at the Royal Oak pub just over that way. And that was over seven and a half miles and still is run, although now it's run in London. So that was sort of one of the first early organised um, cross-country events. And Britain have always rather prized themselves on cross-country, you know, getting out there in mud, you know, getting cold and wet and sort of slogging your way through all sorts of unpleasant um, um, obstacles and so on. Um, and then there was a whole sort of rise of other club events and school events and university-based events and so on. And then following the introduction, the kind of creation, if you like, of the marathon as a distance-running event in the first Olympics, first modern Olympics in 1896... We then have an interest, a sort of very small kind of developing interest in running the marathon in the UK. And that marathon distance that we now know as the distance of 26.2 miles was really um, only, um, only sort of standardised really after the 1908 London Olympics. And from that point onwards, we had an annual marathon in the UK. It's called the Polytechnic Marathon. It went from Windsor to Chiswick. And it had a small number of people running it every year, like dozens of people, probably, men, dozens of men, every year would run this marathon. Um, and then there were a couple other marathons that came along, and then various other cross-country, obviously, track events as well, road events and so on. But it wasn't really until the 60s that then people started really getting into running more as a kind of leisure activity, and there was a big move with orienteering as well, sort of running cross-country and route finding at the same time, which kind of tapped into the British 
kind of outdoorsy sort of um, interests. And then spurred on by the, by the interest in the States, as I mentioned, we get this sudden sort of rise of, of mass participation running. And um, the London Marathon was introduced in 1981. And one of its main aims was to kind of foster this model of mass participation running as seen in America. And they based it mainly on the New York Marathon. Um, so it had many, many aims that were not necessarily related to sport as such, as we'll see in a minute. And from then, we've had a whole plethora of other different running events that have sort of cropped up over the following few decades. So, so most of you are too young to have been around in 1986 to run the world, but anyway, run the world was one of the sort of early mass participation running events that sort of followed on from Live Aid and so on. And then we have uh, the 1990s, this, this Race for Life cancer charity organised series of events for women mainly. And last year, uh, as you can see there, there were half a million runners just doing Race for Life events. And then in 10 years ago, we have another sort of new thing on the running scenes. It's called Park Runs. You can go to a park in more or less any city or town in the UK, um, run a 5K, get your time. You know, you don't have to pay. There's no hassle. There's no, you don't have to belong to a club. You just kind of go, turn up, run. And that's a kind of new popular way of, of running as well. Some people have said that that's actually contributing to a decline in people running in running clubs because they can go out and do this much more kind of, you know, free and easy sort of event. And then there's loads of challenge runs. I mean, you can do all sorts of stuff. You can go out there. You can, you can actually pay about 70 or 80 quid to do something called a, a mud run or a tough mudder. And you run through mud, icy water, you get electric shocks as you go over fences, you know, all sorts of stuff. People actually pay money to do this kind of thing. You know, and you can run at night, you can run all night, you can run for several days, you can do a seven-day, you can go out and run um, you know, in other parts of the world for continuously for 24 hours or whatever. Um, you can dress up at the start of Christmas and run, you can join in other crazy events like this run to the beach, I think it has about 20,000 runners in London where you have continuous um, motivational music as you run around. So there's all this kind of stuff going on, loads of different things. And... Um, don't need to go about it too much, but you know, basically, quick search on the website. You can find there's 200 marathons in the UK a year, roughly, that you can participate in. You can do ultra marathons; those go up to sort of 150 miles, you know, different distances. But all these kind of crazy things, you know, you can do. You can run in all different ways, basically, clad in all different outfits, um, and you can go and run a marathon in any part of the world, basically. You know. A lot of the major world cities have marathons, but there's also marathons in the Sahara and in Antarctica and all sorts of places. You know, you can just, you can just run everywhere. Um, so quite interesting. Um, but a lot of the stuff that's been written about running um, and that we're going to talk about today is more about the marathon because marathon um, has kind of biological and, and cultural significance beyond that of other events. It is a tough physical challenge. And it's kind of got a a bit of a thing about it in relation to, to to the difficulty of achieving it and therefore it's achieved sort of a kind of iconic cultural status as something to aim for and something to do but it has changed um, as well so um, just a couple of points on the marathon um, before I hand over to Mara so basically um, John Bryant is the author of um, a book on the London Marathon and he's a marathon runner himself uh, so right uh, of the times and he he basically comments on this almost overnight change between the marathon as being this sort of very tough physical event that only a few um, elite anorexic-looking men uh, would anticipate, would ever, you know, would ever do, would ever choose to do. And you had marathons with fields of, of dozens of people. And almost overnight, all of a sudden, you kind of go from that, spurred on by this, this trend from the States, to this kind of mass participation thing, these huge city marathons, um, of which there are you know, many around the world. The London has up to 40,000 runners these days. And when the London was set up, it, it had these stated aims. So Chris Bracious, um, one of the key figures behind it, and he set it up um, for these six reasons, essentially. Um, so firstly, it was to improve the overall standard of British marathon running, which uh, was one of the few aims that hasn't really been fulfilled, interestingly. Um, and then all these other aims are sort of more about the kind of social and, and, and cultural um, settings for running. So trying to kind of bring a new 
enjoyable activity to to the UK and to boost tourism and to, to raise money for recreational facilities and, and not so much highlighted here but of course one of the main things about the London Marathon in particular is the charity aspect which is sort of the all-consuming um, media view of the London Marathon which basically um, is an interesting event because it's at the same time one of the very very top elite sporting events and is this kind of crazy mass participation carnival where people just run around dressed as rhinoceroses rhinoceros, and um, raise money for charity and just sort of join in for the fun of it even if they actually hate running they kind of get spurred on to sign up for the London and people almost think they kind of have to do the London Marathon it's almost like a, um, a sort of rite of passage in some way to actually do this, this event um, of which a little more later um, so now I'm going to hand over to Mara who um, has obviously had much more experience of running at um, at a higher level in, in the marathon and other events in the UK and Japan and as she talks hopefully she's going to um, give you a little bit of an idea about the scene in, in Japan and, and perhaps a few contrasts between the UK as well. Okay, thanks Emma. Morning everybody. Um, the reason I'm talking about Japan is because I lived there for five years as an elite athlete from 2006 to 2011 so I was, I was competing and training there and um, got to know a lot about the Japanese system and the athletes and how they're organised and so on. Um, I lived there before for four years as well, but that was as a diplomat, so I, I saw two quite different views of Japan. So, just to give you a very brief snapshot of the running sort of scene in Japan, um, long distance running and the marathon are hugely popular and very successful at all levels. So at elite level, um, you have a huge amount of depth, um, when people think of elite marathon running, they often think of East Africa, so Kenya, mainly Kenyan and Ethiopian runners who, who are really dominating the elite world, but Japan is probably a close third. And in, and in terms of depth, Japan is even arguably better than um, um, some of the East African countries. And I'll go on to why that is in a minute. Um, they have um, elite athletes train in corporate teams, so companies employ athletes um, on their payroll, but they, they either don't work or they work a very small amount, and the rest of the time they spend training. So a company like Nissan or Honda or any of the big Japanese corporations will have an athletics team, they'll employ a coach, a physiotherapist, a nutritionist and so on, and maybe 10 or 15 athletes. And when they go to races, they will have their company name on their vest, so it's good advertising for the company. And there are large numbers of athletes in this situation, so there's lots of depth, lots of competition. <coughs> um, the background of Japan having a very long life expectancy and people being very health conscious, um, I think, contributes to the, the high performance in marathon running there, because... People generally are very health conscious, very weight conscious, relative to Western countries. Um, I think the, the running boom in Japan is going to get even bigger now because um, Tokyo has just been awarded the 2020 Olympics. It's a bit quiet now until Rio in 2016, but after that I think we'll see an even bigger boom in the, in the running scene over there. Lots of involvement from companies, as I said earlier, but also the big media companies actually host and sponsor big marathons. Um, and th through doing that, they get a lot of publicity. Um, interestingly, though, in Japan, they don't really have a, a club structure in the same way as we do here. They've had a lot going on at elite level and then a lot going on as sort of individuals running, um, but not not as much um, in the club level as we have in the UK. In the UK, clubs are basically based around towns or regions. So, for example, there's an Oxford City Athletics Club. Um, but there hasn't been quite that level of um, club structure in Japan. Thank you. Um, this is me running in the Tokyo Women's Marathon in 2005. The reason I've included this photo is just to show you the crowd so this is a women-only marathon with about 300 or so competitors, so it's quite, quite hard to qualify for, so it's not a mass race, it's women-only, and yet 
you've got this enormous crowd. So the whole the whole race would be supported by a crowd of this size, um, which just shows you the, the sort of level of passion amongst ordinary people for, for supporting marathon runners and events. And also the um, the banners, the blue and white banners or or things that people are holding. They would be provided by the media organisation putting on the race, so it's good advertising for, for the corporate sponsors of the events. You might also notice that quite a lot of the crowd is, are senior citizens. <laughs> Japan has a very rapidly ageing population, um, but yet marathon running is, is, is still very popular. So just to give you some historical context, um, one of the main things that makes Japan so um, keen on running is Ekiden road relays, which I'll come on to on the next slide. And Ekiden, Eki means station in Japanese, and den means to sort of transmit or convey. And so what it means is um, a, a sort of relay or a way of passing information. So um, the, the Tokaido route is basically the route between Kyoto, which was the ancient capital of Japan, and Tokyo, which used to be called Edo. And it's about 500 kilometers. The reason this route is important is because during the Shogun era, the Shogun made the um, like equivalent of lords come to Tokyo and pay their respects to him regularly. And the reason he did this was so that they would use up their resources and money, and so it was a way of sort of controlling people and preventing them from becoming rich and able to raise militias and so on against him. So all these um, sort of lower level um, lord equivalents would have to travel on this Tokaido route um, to Tokyo to pay their respects to the shogun. And obviously it would take a long time because they were going on horseback or, or walking. So lots of stations built up along this route, but built up along this route. And, that's, and then in 1917, the Yomiuri, which is another big media organisation, created an Ekiden relay using this Tokaido route. So it started in Kyoto, and they had um, 23 different stops. So 20, it was a team of 23 people running from Kyoto to Tokyo as a relay. And this, this Ekiden idea has grown and grown, and now... Ekiden road relays are very popular and done at all levels, um, and that has contributed to the depth of, of Japanese road running. I've mentioned defeat in World War II there simply because, simply to draw attention to um, the very different historical context in which the Japanese running scene has built up. If you come from the USA or the UK, you know, which were the, on the winning side in World War II. The, the historical context is totally different. So in 1945, Japan was completely destroyed. Um, the priority for the country was rebuilding itself, rebuilding housing, schools, homes, feeding people. Doing marathons probably wasn't a big priority. They just didn't have the sort of capacity to do it. But yet, from 1947, um, the Fukuoka Marathon started, which <coughs> is one of the longest... Um, running annual marathons and before the world championships was established in the early 90s I think um, the Fukuoka marathon was effectively like a world championship for men in the marathon so it's a very historic race the Boston marathon has been going for 118 years I think that's one of the the oldest or if not the oldest marathon in the world but the Fukuoka marathon given the the world the World War II context is also quite an old race. The 1964 Olympic Games, coming out of the defeat in the war, Japan wanted to sort of project itself in, on the world and used the concept of sporting diplomacy to show that it was a new country and it, it, was, it was doing well after the war. So that, that also helped to promote sport a huge amount. Women's running really kicked off in the 1980s with the start of the Nagoya Marathon. Um, there are three major marathons for women and three major marathons for men in Japan now. And Nagoya was the, the first of the women's marathons to be established. Um, the economic boom in the 90s, followed by the recession, which I'm sure you're all familiar with from reading about it in the newspapers, two decades of economic recession and deflation is, is still going on in Japan. 
although people say it's changing now. Um, the reason I mention that is because during the boom years, expensive sort of high-profile flashy sports, if you like, like skiing and golf were very popular because people could afford it. They were earning huge amounts. They had a lot of disposable income. But then Japan went into recession and people were much more interested in cheaper sports. So skiing has gone right down in popularity and at the same time running, which is a relatively cheap sport, has become much more popular. Um, in 2007, the Tokyo Marathon, which had been an elite men's race, was turned into a mass race, so 30,000 plus participants, very similar to the London Marathon. And part of the reason why they established that was Japan was bidding for the Olympic Games in 2016, which, which was awarded to Rio in the end, but they wanted a a mass um, race in the capital city which they could show to the world, prove that Japan is organised and can, can host a fantastic big sporting event like the Olympics. And then at another attempt they were awarded the Olympics. So that's just a bit of historical context about the, the background to where Japan is now. So I mentioned Ekiden Road Relays and this is, this is really the backbone of, of, of running <coughs> success in Japan. Um, this is me running in the Yokohama Ekiden. So it's done at all different levels, including international. So Japan will invite foreign teams to compete in Ekiden relays in, in, in um, various cities in Japan. Um, so it's, it's a marathon or a, usually a longer distance running team. So if it's a marathon, then typically it'll be five or six runners. And between them, they run the 26 miles. Um, as, it, as I mentioned, it's done at all levels, um, often televised, so this kind of race would have been televised. Um, and the, the most famous of all the Ekidens is the Hakone Ekiden, which was started in 1920. Hakone is a ta small town at the foot of Mount Fuji, and this takes place on the 2nd and 3rd of January every year, which is like Thanksgiving or Christmas, so it's public holidays, people are at home watching TV, relaxing at home. It's televised for about eight hours over two days. And the athletes, it's a men's university um, race, so teams from all the different universities compete. Um, they start in central Tokyo, so somewhere like in the front, equivalent to sort of the front of Buckingham Palace, so a really iconic place in central Tokyo. And then they run in, in teams to Hakone at the, at the bottom of Mount Fuji, which is just over 100 kilometres and they're running sort of 20, 25 kilometres each. And then the next day, another six runners from, from each team return to Tokyo. So it's, it's a really huge historic race, and, and if, you, if you sort of set a course record in the Hakone Ekiden, it's like winning Olympic gold in, in other countries. It's a really kind of iconic, iconic race. But the, the key to the Ekidens is because they have to, the companies or universities or whatever have to turn out teams of six, eight or more runners, um, not just one or two, that contributes to a huge amount of depth. So you get really, really good domestic competition. For Japanese athletes, making like the Japanese national team for the Olympics is probably more difficult than winning the Olympics because the depth is so great. Um, so I'm just going to describe in a bit more detail the running scene at elite, at recreational and school level in Japan, just to give you a bit more flavour of, of, of how, it, how it is. Um, the corporate teams I mentioned earlier, these are just the numbers of teams um, um, that, that exist. Recently there have been individuals running as well, so the, the current best marathon runner in Japan is a civil servant who, who works in the local government. He works for half the day and then he trains. and. He's a real hero in that because he's he's sort of rejected this corporate team model and he's doing it by himself. But there are only one or two of those. So there are probably about a thousand full-time athletes training for the marathon. In the UK, um, when before I retired, there it was sort of me, Paula Radcliffe, one or two others. So less than ten probably of men and women in the UK training full-time. There are a lot more in the US. The US has a similar situation to Japan, so they have teams which are sponsored by the main um, manufacturers like Nike. Or, um, but in the UK, it's a very small number competing full-time. 
to give you a flavour of the difference in level, in Japan, the number of men who run under 209, which is a, quite a sort of world-class level, is 38, and there are only four in the UK. That's ever. And for women, 33 women in Japan have run under 226, and in, in the UK it's only three. The population in Japan is about twice the size of the UK's, but even so you can see it's a huge difference. Um, I won't go through all these points, but just to pick up one, pick up one or two, um, because a lot of the because the teams are paying the athletes to train and compete, the athletes don't need to worry about um, earning a living through running. So they're being paid a salary. So what that means is that the athletes are really competing for glory rather than money. They they want to get on their team. They want to win medals, whatever. But what you see in a lot of other countries where you don't have that financial security is athletes are competing for money. They're, they're earning a living through their running. Um, and unfortunately, that often leads to doping because you can obviously run faster, <laughs> earn more money. And if you don't get caught, then you, know, you earn more money, nobody ever finds out. Great. Um, but in Japan, um, because they don't have that financial incentive, um, doping or any other, any form of cheating is really frowned upon, and people to the point where people just don't really understand why anyone would dope. They just can't see how why anyone would, would want to do that because it's such a dishonest sort of bad thing to do to your fellow competitors. Um, should we move on to the next slide? Yeah. So briefly at recreational level, um, again lots of diversity in types of races in terms of distances and terrains and so on. So similar to the UK in that respect. Um, what's quite remarkable about Japan is the, the ages of some of the athletes you see competing. I was at a race a year ago and there was a woman who was about 85 doing a half marathon, um, which isn't, is, is not that unusual. Um, Races fill up very quickly, so it shows how, how popular they are. Um, you sometimes get um, races which are outside Japan, but effectively are Japanese races. So the Honolulu Marathon, for example, is, is overwhelmingly run by Japanese. Um, it's, it's, I think it's sponsored by JAL, which is the Japanese airline. Um, it's almost like a Japanese race that's just been, <laughs> been held in Hawaii. Um, one big difference with the UK is that amongst recreational runners in Japan, the main aim for them is to run fast. They want to break their PB, whatever fast may mean for them. It might mean four hours, five hours, whatever, but what they're trying to do is run fast and break their PB. They're not trying to raise money, so the charity element which we see in the UK doesn't really exist in Japan at all. It's, it's starting a tiny bit now, but it really hasn't existed, and that makes a huge difference. Um, it's also um, <clears throat> since I since I've been a professional athlete. If I if I talk to people, if I say to people, oh, I'm doing the London Marathon, many many times people have said to me, Oh, who are you running for? As in, what charity are you supporting? And I I sort of feel ashamed that I have to say, oh, I'm just running for myself. I'm just running to run fast. It's it's like running for charity is the same thing as running a marathon. And people have have almost lost the concept that you might want to run a marathon to run fast. Whereas in Japan, the concept of running it to run fast is still very much what motivates recreational runners. <clears throat> um, Recently, there have been some really interesting trends emerging in Japan over running, which is these last three points. Um, one is corporate entertainment. So up to now, golf has been the main thing which, which Japanese business people will use to entertain clients or colleagues or whatever. And you hear stories of um, business people having to spend the weekends playing golf. Now, running a marathon or running a distance race has become <laughs> has started to replace that, and um, so you you might go away for a weekend with your boss or your client or whatever, <laughs> run a marathon, <laughs> and it doesn't sound very attractive, I know, um, 
I one of my sponsors when I was in Japan was a sports shop, so it was like a sports retailer. And every year at the end of December, they had they had their sort of marathon entertainment event. So they would invite all their clients. So sorry, not clients, their suppliers. So people from Adidas, Nike, Asics would come, and we would meet up at the river. Where, near where we lived and we'd all run 20 kilometres and there would be a raffle and then we'd go to a bar and all have dinner together and stuff and the thing that struck me about this was okay it, it's okay to get people to run you know they're working in the sports industry in theory they should they should like doing exercise but 20 kilometres is quite far if you don't run or if you hate running now, maybe 5k would be okay to make people run, but and a lot of these people are typical Japanese businessmen, which means a lot of them chain smoke, they're not very healthy, <laughs> they work all hours. So, you know, we there was this scene of these really unhealthy men running 20, <laughs> made to run 20 kilometers, and it was it was quite a weird, um, um sort of way of entertaining, keeping your suppliers happy, but anyway, they they seem to enjoy it. <laughs> Um, another thing which has cropped up is matchmaking. So some events have, I'm not sure if any of you saw recently a BBC programme about Japan, but young people are sh really shunning marriage and having children and even relationships. Um, and sort of a staggering proportion of people in the sort of 20 to 35 age group aren't in a relationship, have no interest in being one, don't want kids. And, but anyway, so, so, and it's partly because it's very difficult to meet a person who could become your spouse um, because people work so hard and so on. So anyway, now there are matchmaking events which incorporate distance running. So that's a very unusual... So the, the motivation there is not running, it's to find a spouse through running. So that's they're using running as to address something very different. And then running beauty is also a big theme in Japan. So. That's a real contrast with the UK. And Japanese people in general take a huge amount of, make a huge effort, spend a lot of money on their appearance, um, their hair, their clothing, etc. And that has extended to running. So people will really bend over backwards to wear the right clothes, matching outfits, make for women, make sure they're done, their faces are done nicely and so on. To the point where there are books published about how to look good running. So, so it's, it's, again, like the matchmaking, it's really not about running at all. It's about some other purpose, and in this case, it's looking, looking beautiful through running. Um, so those are very interesting. Certainly in the UK, I can't imagine running beauty ever becoming a theme, because <laughs> runners, I think, are quite renowned here for, for not looking their best. <laughs> um, I'm conscious of time, so I'll quickly whiz through this last um, slide. Um, I mentioned school level because, like the Ekidans, the running at school level is also a really important sort of pipeline to the popularity of running amongst adults in Japan. So um, there's not only a very sort of advanced level of training and competition going on at school level, but also loyalty to your school or your city or prefecture. Prefecture is equivalent to county in the UK. It's also very strong. Um, and that sort of fuels rivalry and competition and, and kids want to run well for their school. Um, I mentioned this, foreign talent. Um, in the corporate teams that I mentioned earlier, the vast majority of the athletes are Japanese, but there are one or two Africans, that the mostly Kenyans, that these teams are recruiting. And that's so that they get better results, because the Kenyans generally are very good runners. They usually only have a small number, because it's not that popular amongst the Japanese population. They really want to see Japanese runners doing well. But if it means they can win a race by having one or two Kenyans in, then they, then they go along with that. Um, so there were Kenyans coming to join the corporate teams, but also at school level, there's been some um, Kenyans going to Japan at school age, like junior high school, high school. And Sami Wanjiru, who won the, was Kenyan and won the Beijing Olympic men's marathon, um, he went to school in Sendai in north, northeast Japan. 
he then joined the corporate team. He was he was a world leading athlete. He won the Chicago Marathon twice, I think. Won the Olympics, um, and so he was he was a product of the Japanese system, if you like, even though he was Kenyan born. Very sadly, he died after the Beijing Olympics, and also very sadly, his school, which he attended in Sendai, was was very badly destroyed by the tsunami because Sendai was was one of the cities which was really badly affected by the 2011 tsunami. Um, discipline etiquette manners I mentioned just because um, in Japan people's approach to sport is very it's quite sort of ritualistic and you sometimes for example see see runners at the end of a marathon when they cross the line they'll turn around and bow at the course that they've just run so certain things like that or um, always shaking hands with somebody if, it, if it's a team sport, that sort of thing. That sort of thing is really drilled into children at, at school level and I think that is also part of the reason why you see very little doping going on amongst Japanese athletes because they, they take sort of honesty and not cheating very seriously in sport. So Just just finish on that, that's the Tokyo Marathon again. Um, I just wanted to highlight the, the crowd. So for a women's race with only about 300 competitors and you have this enormous crowd. Um, and this is Takahashi Naoko, the Olympic champion. So if you're a recreational runner, somebody I mean a good recreational runner who can run under three hours, you can go and do this race against the Olympic champion in your own country. And that's, I mean, that's a huge sort of motivation for, for good club level runners um, and they also invite some foreign athletes to to um, add a bit of spice although what they really want is a Japanese winner. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll finish there and hand back to Emma. Excellent, thank you. Um, brilliant, so having, having set the scene and thought a little bit about some of those um, cultural differences between the two, the two countries, um, I'm just going to turn to a slightly different theme now and um, think a little bit about... Um, What's out there in the in the literature about um, motivation for running and, and culture within distance running? Um, there's loads of popular literature out there, and uh, a lot of it um, follows, I think, what is called a quest narrative. So that a lot of the books out there are written by people who um, have some sort of problem, which are then overcome by running. So that they start off. Um, with cancer or depressed or, or fat or divorced or something and they take on running and they use running as a way to kind of restore them back to physical and mental health in different ways. So that's one of the sort of themes of some of the popular literature, although it's quite a diverse literature. Um, but if you look at the academic literature on running, and I, I spent quite a lot of time um, looking for what was out there really about motivation in running and it, it comes from all different directions um, and is not particularly multidisciplinary in that, although there are lots of different disciplines involved in writing it, um, they don't seem to come together particularly in what they talk about. So, um, so as you can see, a whole, a whole range of different academic disciplines have touched on, on running and particularly running the marathon um, in recent years. So, so we've, got, we've got literature coming um, quite a lot from, really from leisure and tourism studies because running is, is a big... Um, a big money spinner, effectively, and there's a lot of interest in how to um, how to encourage runners to participate in events and what makes them participate, what makes them travel to different countries to participate, and that kind of thing. Um, from from psychology, particularly social psychology, there, there's um, a lot of stuff on, on classic what you might think of as motivation, actual motivations for individuals to run, uh, why people. Uh, take up running, why they persist with running, why they adhere to a particular mode of running, um, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Um, and then obviously you've got sort of your classic sports sciences um, contributing to um, studies about um, about motivation in running, and health sciences looking at, um, at this as well in relation to is it possible to address some of the health issues through running? Um, is it possible to motivate people to run as a means of addressing health? Issues that kind of thing, um, and then perhaps sort of more interestingly um, for us, some of the some of the, the sociology um, and anthropology and, and philosophy literature 
looking a bit about more like the meaning of running, what what it is about the mass running phenomena that kind of reflects um, cultural and social trends. So there's, there's a few different things to talk about, I and mean, in a way, there's sort of three different, almost three different ways of looking at it which I've come across. So basically, there's quite a few studies that talk about individual participation motives as described by runners. So they sort of questionnaire, basically, research questionnaires, sending out to people, why, why have you taken up running? Why do you do it? And so on. Um, some of which are then interpreted in, in a more detailed, analytical way by social psychologists who then try to pick apart what it is from these kind of basic um, motives which are presented, how that um, is kind of explained by underlying um, trends in social psychology. And then perhaps more interestingly, um, as a kind of bigger picture look on running, um, some of the more recent work um, that I've read uh, looks more at how the um, running, the kind of trends in running, particularly in the mass participation running events, how they've been seen as um, new ways, perhaps, of achieving um, goals that are sort of deeper in our social cultural history. So are there sort of social and cultural or even biological antecedents to mass participation marathon running? Did we do other things um, before these came on the scene and does that explain why we want to do them, I guess, is the thing. Um, so just briefly, a couple of things. This is, this is one of the sort of... Um, more in-depth um, looks at the motivation of marathoners by, um, this is by Masters and Ogle, who are um, American psychologists. Uh, they identified um, over 100 possible motives for people taking up the marathon more as a sport, these are more serious runners, and then they used the marathon runners themselves in order to refine and get to the bottom of the most significant and most important uh, motivating factors for um, undertaking this sport and there are 56 different factors, very very difficult to get at actually what these are I can't, I can't get the literature on exactly what they all are but they've grouped them into these nine, uh, nine general themes about why people might take up running um, for psychological coping methods to raise self esteem to give their life meaning and uh, then there's the health motives social and the achievement motives and this kind of scheme um, has been used in a whole variety of studies to try and examine um, what it is that gets people started on this, why, how they change over um, time spent in the sport, whether it differs between different countries and so on. So this has been used in a, in a range of different studies. Um, if you look at... Um, some sociologists, um, Nettleton and Hardy, who are from York University, they, they've written um, particularly about the London Marathon and trying to look at motives for people running in the London Marathon. And as part of this, they've identified um, effectively four groups of runners in something like the London Marathon, which, um, have, which, which present different... Um, different complexes of motives as to why they might run. So you've obviously got your sort of your purist runner who basically are there for the sport, your elite athlete are there for the sport. Um, contrasted with that, you've got your fun runner who are there for the sort of carnival atmosphere. Um, they're not particularly into running, but they are into the atmosphere, the experience, whatever that gives to them for raising money and so on. And this is obviously the sort of bulk of people in the London Marathon. And in fact, it's very difficult to run the London Marathon without being a charity runner these days. So the majority of runners in there are, are running for charity to some extent, whether they like it or not, effectively. Um, these guys say the leisure runners, uh, these are people who don't really like running, and they're not that interested in the charity aspect either, but they kind of have to take it on board if they want to participate in the marathon. And, and then you have a few who are in the purple one there who are sort of runners who um, are quite interested in, in raising money for charity as well, but running is still their primary um, motive as a sport, they're more sports people. So you've got a sort of a different way of, of looking at this. And in this paper, which is, is called Running Away with Health, um, 
Nathan and Hardy talk particularly about the charity dimension of, of running, which is quite interesting. And they particularly talk about um, this notion of fit bodies, healthy bodies, the healthy running body, raising money for sick bodies. So this, this notion that um, you can kind of capture the imagination of people to promote running as a physical, healthy activity, and at the same time it's doing good for people who are not healthy. And I just put this in because there's some, there's some, um, there's a particular way in which the charities involved with running try to draw people in um, and basically get them to sign up for um, for running for that particular charity. And it's quite, a, as you can see, it's quite a kind of strong, very strong sort of biomedical message. You know, we're out there, we're going to attack the diseases by, by running, by putting our fit bodies through this this um, endurance event, we can actually contribute uh, and we can actually um, you know, stamp on the disease as it were. So there's, there's a particular way um, in which the charities try to get runners to participate and it's actually quite a sort of competitive field in the way that the charities compete for runners, the charities compete with each other to get runners by trying to put out the strongest message and effectively the runners also compete with themselves, um, compete with each other in terms of who can raise the most money. And you might also have a strand whereby the people sponsoring them compete as to who can give the most money. Um, so there's quite a lot of um, competition, if you like, within this, um, this charity thing. Um, and what you also see is um, the sort of, within charity running, this is in Race for Life, one of the women's only um, races in support of cancer charities, which is really, really popular in the UK. So there was, um, there was over half a million people running this last year in different ways. So totally different from what you ever see in, in Japan. This is entirely charity. You don't run in these races to be a runner. You don't run in these races to, to win a medal or to get a fast time or anything. You just run to be part of this kind of body, this fundraising body. And this is particularly well known for this sort of personal... Um, a personification of misfortune so you get people running with um, little narratives about why they're running in relation to friends and family who have suffered from misfortune and it's all tied up with the, the event everyone wears um, particular outfits and it's a real mass participation sort of unified approach kind of feel if you, if you go into these, into these races um, and again a kind of attack as it were on the the disease, this is very sort of the language of this cancer, we're coming to get you and sort of seeing illness in this bio, biomedical way and then using the, the event as a way to sort of promote views of, of attacking the disease and, and raising money to attack the disease is in there. And and then just while I was thinking about this, I just happened to read uh, this article of the day, which just was kind of interested me because all of these um, things I've been talking about, these charity events, and particularly the, the marathon, the way in which the media have um, got involved with the marathon and with these other events, it's all about effectively promoting people who actually aren't good at the sport. So the main focus of the, um, the London Marathon, apart from focusing on the elite athletes, is focusing on the charity runners. And they're basically want to talk about the runners who basically aren't very good, you know, they're going to take eight hours to run the marathon or whatever, and they're going to do it dressed up in a silly costume and so on. They're just not, or, or they're a celebrity and they're just running the marathon as a celebrity. And there's, I just thought it was worth sort of maybe just drawing a little idea about celebrity culture and what these events are doing in relation to celebrity culture. And this is, this is just about diving, obviously, but... Um, I just thought it was, it was worth sort of mentioning it. Television, um, it says here, has created a demand for people doing their best and falling short, while people who get close to real excellence are of no interest whatsoever. So if you think of the marathon as a sporting event, with the exception of the, very, the top elite runners, other people who are interested in it as a sport aren't really covered at all. You don't really, you don't really hear much about ordinary club runners who are running good times. But you do hear lots about <coughs> people who aren't very good at it. And... Um, people who are sort of doing something in a kind of slightly crazy, sort of silly way. And they get on television and they're excited about getting on television because they're wearing the most outrageous costume or you know, trying to make the race as difficult as they can for themselves. So 
just something I thought was interesting. And finally, um, just to come on, just with two slides, two final slides, just to come on to some of the other ways in which um, these kind of cultural antecedents of running have been discussed. So if you read um, some of these um, works that I've come across in, um, in sociology and um, other related subjects, that the marathon, the urban marathon in particular, and this really applies to the, the urban marathon, has been defined as almost like a, a procession, and people have linked it up to bygone ways of, of celebrating um, in terms of spiritual and religious congregations, the way in which people come together as individuals but in a collective field, um, and the ways in which um, the participants and the spectators are sort of united as well, um, has, been, has been written about by, um, by Berkey and Neckel. They, they write particularly about the Berlin Marathon and what they observed there, how they see it as a kind of new way of perhaps um, expressing older ways of being, perhaps. Um, others, um, we've mentioned the, the charity side of things. Um, others talk about running in relation to asceticism, the idea of self-control and self-development and setting oneself a goal that's really difficult in order to gain something mentally and physically from, um, from the experience itself. Um, and then there's, there's discussion uh, also about rights and responsibilities of citizens in relation to running being perceived as a kind of health-based activity and if you have the ability to do it, you almost kind of should do it and should put yourself forward um, and participate in this kind of thing, not least because you can help others less fortunate than yourselves through the charitable component as well. So there's sort of different ways of, of thinking about it, I suppose, even down to um, those who describe running as a way of kind of reclaiming urban spaces, people can um, be involved in something in areas not normally accessible to mass participation, the cities closing off major parts of the city, allowing people to kind of get in there and, and reclaim areas in the way perhaps that processions and so on might have done in the past. Um, and within this... Um, there's been discussion of um, what you can gain, what people actually gain from this in relation to the sociological concept of capital, people gaining um, hard-to-measure concepts of things like cultural and symbolic capital. They actually gain something by participating in these events, um, which is which sort of is reflected in some of these different areas. And, and finally... Um, and perhaps slightly differently and slightly obscurely as well, but I'm hoping that um, that perhaps uh, Caroline might be able to help me with, with some of this. Um, recently in a paper by Sarah Nettleton, who's at York University, she, she goes away from talking about running in mass urban um, settings and talks, and she's actually done an ethnography of fell runners, so she's gone and work and, and run with people who participate in fell running in the north of England. A particular kind of running that requires, um, obviously, physical fitness to run, but you have to kind of um, be very focused on the environment as well and navigate through the environment. Um, so it needs a very um, much more sort of um, deeper consciousness of the environment, if you like, as well. And she, she's coined the term, apparently, existential capital, the idea that you acquire something... Um, some kind of meaningful um, physical um, embodying experience by by participating in this kind of running, and um, it links up, I think, a little to some of the work of um, philosophers who write about running, who talk about running for its inherent value, who try to get away from the idea of people thinking that running is always for something, like we're doing it for something, for some other reason, and trying to suggest, if you like, that running is such an inherently pleasurable thing that, um, in a way, when you strip away all the layers of, all the other layers of meaning, you get, just get down to this idea that running is essentially an activity, a play activity that, that everyone once engages in and once enjoys as a child and then loses, um, and obviously some of us regain it later on. Um, as a kind of underlying theme.
So um, I think I shall stop there. There's lots. Um, I know there's lots in there. I shall just leave you with a couple of um, a couple of quotes back on the back on the London again.